Greetings and welcome to TanakhStudy.com, the Tanakh podcast program in which we study Tanakh together. And in this program of studying Chumash, we study one-sixth of the parasha each day of the week, uh, culminating on Arab Shabbat when we conclude the parasha. Uh, together we will be studying Parashot Yitro, Mishpatim, Trumat Etzavek, Hitisa, and Vayakel Kudei from here to the end of Sefer Shmot. And so now we will focus our intentions on Parashat Yitro, which in our breakdown of the Chumash takes up exactly three chapters, Perak Yod Chet, Perak Yod Tet, and Perak Chaf. Uh, conveniently, uh, these chapters are actually pretty intelligently divided, um, and some of the chapter divisions in Chumash are not as elegant. Uh, and as such, we will be devoting two podcasts each uh, to each chapter. Uh, and in this initial podcast of Perak Yod Chet, we'll be doing the following. First of all, we will take a brief look at the general structure of this literary unit, and I'll justify why it's an independent literary unit in a moment, and then focus our attentions on the first half of that unit uh, and study it in depth. Um, the reason that this is a uh, the chapter 18 uh, is really an independent unit over its 27 psukim uh, is because, first of all, there is a parashat misorah. So just to clarify some terms, the word parasha uh, really means a paragraph. And in the Masoretic text, the received text that we have of the Torah and all of Tanakh, there are paragraph divisions which are inherent in the text, uh, not a foreign uh, interjection like the chapter divisions. Uh, and some which are somewhat artificial, uh, and so when we see a parashat misorah, meaning a Masoretic paragraph, which in a Sefer Torah then ends by either marking a space of nine empty letters afterwards before beginning the next unit, which is called a parashat stuma, a closed paragraph, or when it starts on the next line, which then makes it a parashat Pitucha, an open paragraph, then we know that to some extent we have a self-contained literary unit. And this unit is got one topic, and that is the visit of Yitro to Moshe in Midbar Sinai, and the things that transpire. And the unit is very well bookended because it begins with Yitro's arrival, um, which really starts in Pasuke, but is introduced by introducing Yitro and the family members, and it ends with Yitro's departure in the very last Pasuk when Moshe sends him away. There are numerous key words that appear in this parasha, but we will only really be able to see the full structure of the parasha after analyzing both halves of it, uh, which will be over this and the next podcast. So towards the end of the next podcast, we will then look back and take a look at the structure of the parasha uh, to identify uh, what that structure is and how it may enhance our understanding of the parasha. <clears throat> the first thing I'd like to discuss before even getting into the parasha is the identity of the central character in this parasha. And the central character in this parasha is not Moshe, but really is Yitro, as is seen by his arrival, occasions a gathering around him, not around Moshe, of all sorts of notables of the community, and it is his advice to Moshe which changes the juridical structure in Israel and the hierarchical structure of courts, and it is his advice which is taken 
Uh, and so he really is the star of this parasha. Now, who is Yitro? So Yitro is somebody that we were first introduced to uh, back in Perak Gimel. Back in Perak Gimel. So we have to remember that Yitro, which could be associated with the name, with the word Yeter, in the sense of something extra or something added, has been midrashically assumed to be the same character as Yeter, who shows up in Perak Dalad, uh, the same character as Chovav, who shows up in uh, Bamidbar, <coughs> Perak Yod, and also shows up in Sefer Shoftim, uh, and who is also the same as Ruel, who we're introduced to in Perak Bet of Shmot, and several other names that, that uh, the Midrash associates with him with, uh, which uh, Rashi quotes in his commentary right here at the beginning of the parasha, that he has seven names. Um, and that all assumes the following, that this Yitro, otherwise known, a.k.a. Ruel, a.k.a. Chovav, is the father of Tzipporah and Moshe's father-in-law. And that means that when Moshe first meets Yitzipporah and her sisters. Uh, the father is still alive, is alive, of course, and marries his daughter off to Moshe. And that now, after however much time has passed since Moshe married her, uh, and we'll discover that that may not be as small, as short of a period as we might think, uh, that uh, that uh, the Sitro is still alive and active and traveling and giving advice. And it also means that a year later, when B'nai Yisrael are about to leave Har Sinai, Midbar Sinai, uh, he is back, although with the name Chovav, uh, as he appears in Bamidbar, which takes place uh, almost uh, a year, approximately a year after this event. So, of course, if the only problem were chronology, and the only problem were this fellow staying alive that long. It's certainly easy to posit that the father of the daughters was a relatively young man when Moshe met, and maybe Moshe only got there when he was close to 80, and now, a year later, they've left, and a year afterwards, they're about to leave Har Sinai to Eretz Yisrael, and then this fellow shows up. But we have several other problems with that approach. Problem number one is that the Chumash and the Tanakh knows how to tell us that there are characters who have two names. Sometimes the name is changed for us in the text, like Avram becomes Avraham, and Yaakov becomes Yisrael. And on a less known level, but known to all of TanakhStudy.com uh, listeners, Gidon becomes Yerubal, Shlomo is also named Yedidya, uh, Hadassah is also Esther, and, uh, and we're familiar with people who have two names. Sometimes the names are variations, like Yehoyachin and Yehonya, or Yonatan and Yehonatan. Sometimes the names are given names later on because of an event. Um, uh, like the town of Luz becomes known as the town of Beit El uh, because of Yaakov's vision there. Um, and, uh, and sometimes we're just told that somebody has two names or a place has two names. And, uh, and as like Hadassah, he is there. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. But to assume that there are different characters, and in this case we're going to focus on three of them, Ruel, Yitro, and and uh, Chovav, and to say that they are all one and the same without the text at any point connecting them together is one difficulty. The second difficulty is uh, that um, Yitro arrives here at Harsinai, gives Moshe the advice, and as we'll see in the next podcast, then the Samuel goes back home to his land. 
And Moshe sends him home, which means Moshe doesn't seem to have an interest in having Yitro stay with him, or maybe it was not even a question. When we look at the conversation between Moshe and ostensibly the same fellow, Chovav, at the end of the pre-march, at the last event to happen before B'nai Israel start the triumphal march to Israel, at least ideally, uh, he begs Chovav to stay with them and to walk him through the desert. And Chovav says he doesn't want to. He's going to go back to his land. And Moshe then says, please, you'll be our eyes in the desert. We don't hear from Chovav. But we learn later from Sefer Shoftim that Chovav actually went with them. And his descendants entered the land and conquered the land with them. And one of his descendants had a wife named Yael, who turned out to be a great savior for the Jewish people in Shoftim Perak Dalad, as sung about in Perak by Dvorah and Barak. So it's a little bit difficult to understand how Yitro is sent back by Moshe and Chovav is begged to come and does indeed come. Um, that's, that is, uh, is yet another problem. Uh, so let's take a look at the Psukim as they are and see what we can understand. We go back to Perak Bet and we meet Moshe meeting the daughters of whom? Of Ruel. That's what we're told. Not Ruel. And he has seven daughters. And it says that when they come home early, how do you come so home so early? Come home so early, and Ishmitri saved us from the shepherds, and he gave water to our flock. Please summon him, come on in, and he gives Tzipora his daughter, whose daughter, Ruel's daughter, to Moshe, and they have a child, and that child is named Gershom. Now, a side question, but one that may impact on this, is when did all of that happen? Because, remember, Moshe ran away from Egypt, back in Parshat Shmot. Moshe ran away from Egypt after striking and killing the Egyptian, and then learning the next day that Paro had heard about it. And how old was he at the time? So the Ramban posits that he was a young man, maybe in his 20s, maybe even younger. When we next meet him with an age, he's coming to Egypt as a man of 80. So where was he all that time? So famously, the Midrash fills in the blanks by suggestion, suggesting that he went to Africa, became a Kushite warlord, married a Kushite princess. Very long, interesting Midrash. But the simple shot of it is that he ran from Egypt to Midian, meaning he ran uh, east and into the desert, and, uh, and then found the, the Midianite tribe, which means that it's very possible that he met Tsiporah and that he met Ruel, uh, much earlier than close to 80, and that, uh, and that at some point along the way uh, he fathered a child, and that's Gershom, and, uh, and that he's been with the Midianim for quite a while, which may incidentally be, and according to some of the Rishonim, is an explanation for Moshe's refusal to go speak because he is kvad pe uchvad lashon, heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue, or arel sfataim, of uncircumcised lips, because he doesn't know how to speak Egyptian anymore. He's been out of Egypt so long, and he's been in Midian all of this time. Be that as it may, uh, I just hadn't mentioned earlier that it's possible that Moshe has been here much longer, which would then make Ruel significantly older by the time that we have left Bitzrayim and have, have returned to the desert and are in Midbar Sinai. In any case, uh, here is uh, another proposal, which is really advanced by Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra. And that is that uh, the word chotein, and it all rests on the meaning of this word, the word chotein, which Yitro is called chotein Moshe, the fact that Yitro is also called Yeter in Perak Dawid of Shemot is of no significance. That's like Yonatan and Yehonatan, Yehonian and Yehoyachin. Those are just variations that are common in Tanakh. Um, but uh, but the, word, the question is what the meaning of chotein is. 
And the Benazir claims that Chotein is, means any male who's related to you through marriage. means it could be your father-in-law. It could also mean your brother-in-law. And therefore, the Benazir maintains that Yitro is Moshe's brother-in-law. Now, how did Yitro become Kohen Midian? It's actually quite straightforward. Ruel was Kohen Midian. Ruel died, or retired at this point, and Yitro took over, which would then explain why Moshe is tending the flock for Yitro, because Yitro, being a tribal leader, has to have someone else tend his flock. So his brother-in-law, Moshe, takes care of the flock for him, and that, of course, leads him to Sinai, and this is why Moshe comes back after the famous vision at the Sinai and asks Yitro, or yet there, for permission to go back to Egypt because he has to hand over the flock to somebody, and, uh, and, and he does so. And so Yitro comes here with his sister, Zipporah, uh, and Yitro is then filled with good advice about uh, about how to run things administratively because he is now Kohen Midian. Kohen, Kohen here not necessarily being a religious uh, position, nearly as much as a political position as we find in Sefer Shmuel Bet, Uvnei David Kohanim Hayu. Uh, meaning, Bnei David obviously were from Shevet Yehuda, but they're called Kohanim, meaning they're leaders. Uh, and so, as being Kohen Midian, so the leader of the tribe, which then explains why, of course, he has to go back to his tribe, because he's the leader of the tribe. Uh, he also has some experience in managing numbers of people, and even though his numbers likely don't come close to the numbers of Bnei Israel, it's the same system, just exponentially ma- uh, multiplied out, and he gives his advice to Moshe, which is the advice that we will see in detail in the in the next podcast, in the second half of the parak. And, <clears throat> and as such... We then meet another brother of Tzipporah in Sefer Bamidbar, and this brother's name is Chovav. He's a different fellow, and he is a younger brother, not necessarily younger than Tzipporah, but younger than Yitro, and as a result of that, he's not going Midian. He didn't have to take over. The eldest brother takes over, and therefore Chovav, who is not tied to Midian in any way, is invited by Moshe, and Chovav is somebody who knows the desert well, can help them navigate through the desert. And indeed, Chovav comes along, and his uh, descendants become uh, kinsmen with the Jewish people and part of the, uh, of the conquest and the settlement, as detailed in the first chapter of Sefer Shoftim. So just that word about Yitro. And now we'd like to take a look at our Pasuk. Vayishma Yitro Chohim Midian Choten Moshe. We've spoken about that. Eit kol asher asa Elohim lemoshe uliyisrael amo. So Yitro, again, the leader of Midian, the brother-in-law or father-in-law of Moshe, heard everything that Elohim did for Moshe and for Yisrael, his people. All right? Let's finish the Pasuk, and we'll talk about the meaning here. Ki Yisrael In that Hashem had taken Bnei Yisrael out of Egypt. Now, there are, and there's one pregnant word here, uh, at the very end of the first half of the Pasuk, and that is Amo. A, that Yitro heard everything that Elohim did for Moshe and for Yisrael, his nation. Who's his nation? I mean, who's the his? Is this Hashem's nation? Or is it Moshe's nation? In other words, is it that Yitro heard everything that God did for his, we'll call him brother-in-law, and also for Yisrael, his people? Because remember, the last time that Moshe had seen Yitro, he had said to him, I want to go see how my brothers are doing. And so from Yitro's perspective, Israel is his nation, in other words, Moshe's nation. 
Or does Yitro have a broader view now and say, I and, and understand that Hashem had done things for Moshe and for Yisrael, his, God's people? Could be read both ways. And the second half of the Pasuk may drive the second understanding. The Amo means God's people, not Moshe's people, in that Hashem had taken Yisrael out of Mitzrayim. Now, an interesting question that Chazal deal with um, in this Pasuk. Uh, Gemara at the end of Zvachim and the and the Mechilta here is Mashmua Shema Uva, meaning what motivated Yitro to come and to greet Moshe. Uh, the simplest reading of it is that Yitro came because his uh, sister and his nephew or nephews nephews were with him in Midian, and now the missing husband had come back gloriously with a nation that had walked out triumphantly. So he's coming to bring the family back and to reunite them. But of course, for that, he could have waited till they passed by Midian. He comes part way to our Sinai to greet them. So something motivated him to come out. What motivated him? So we have several different opinions. Was it Yitziat Mitzrayim, the very fact of the miraculous exodus? Was it Mechemet Amalek? Why would we think it's that? Because that's the last thing we read about at the end of Bishalach, the very last event we read about. Is it um, Kriyat Yamsuf, which is also much more recent? Is it an amalgamation of them? The truth is that the text will tell us in a little bit, uh, or seem to indicate to us, what it is that motivated him to come out or drove him to come out. So what happens? Yitro, first of all, hears about this. Now, where is that happening? That's happening in Midian. Now, Vayikach Yitro Choten Moshe et Sipora Eshet Moshe. So Yitro, and again the brother-in-law of Moshe, we'll read it that way, although keep in mind, every time we say Choten, it could be brother-in-law or father-in-law. That Yitro, the brother-in-law Moshe, takes Tziporah, the wife of Moshe, which the text here is deliberately putting everything as revolving around Moshe. But even though, as I pointed out, this passage really revolves all around Yitro. But Yitro takes Yitro, who is the Chotein Moshe, takes Tziporah, who is Eshet Moshe, Achar Shiluchah, after she was sent away. Now, Shiluchaha is another pregnant word, and it can be read in several ways. The two most obvious reads of it, which are the two that we'll entertain, are that he simply sent her away in order to go to Egypt and to rescue his people. The other possibility, which is based on the language in Dvarim, Parak Haftalad, is that he divorced her. In other words, that Moshe had a wife, had children, had sons, and then Hashem said, go to Mitzrayim. He said, I can't do that with a family. And then he divorced her, and that this was now a reunification or a remarriage, if you will, of Moshe and Tzipor, a reunification of the family. Uh, this word, Achashiluchaha, also leads to some very interesting parshanut again, back in Parshat Shmot, because so much of these first few psukim close a circle that was opened up at various points in Parshat Shmot, both with the marriage of Moshe de Tzipporah, the birth of Gershom, Moshe's leaving the family, but also, if you recall, there's a very bizarre scene that takes place when Moshe leaves Midian to go to Mitzrayim, and in that scene, um, which could be interpreted multiple ways, Moshe ostensibly takes his wife and sons to Mitzrayim, uh, and then there's that strange encounter in the lodge with the circumcision at the uh, end, at the, towards the end of Perak Dalad, and that's followed by Moshe meeting Aharon at Har Sinai, 
and Tzipora is nowhere to be seen. And so the Midrashic take on it, to fill in the blanks, is that Moshe brought Tzipora and the children, encountered Aharon, and introduced Aharon, here is your sister-in-law and your nephews, and Aaron's response was, We're upset about all the people we have in Egypt. Why are you bringing more people in? And then Moshe sent them back. And that would be Achar Shilucheha, that he sent uh, Tzipporah and, uh, back, not necessarily divorcing, but just sent her back. And now is the reunification. Okay, who else comes? Pasuk Gimel, the eight Shnei Vaneha. Who else comes? Her two sons. Interesting. They're also Moshe's sons. But who is being who is being reunited? Moshe with Tzipporah and her sons. The other those three. Hashem Ha'echad Gershom. So one of the one of them is named, and we know this. We assume this to be the Bechor because he's the only one we heard about earlier. Ki Amar So the name of one of them is Gershom, which is curiously sounds like a Levitic name that shows up several times in the Levitic tables, including as a direct son of Levi, which is Gershon with a Nun. Now, Nun and Mem are often interchangeable letters in all sorts of places, especially at the end of a word. So we could understand this as being some sort of a play on the name, the Levitic name Gershon, which Moshe would have from his tribe, and he would know Gershon as a great-great-uncle, really. Um... Or no oven that way, uh, but Moshe played with it and said, "Why am I calling him Gershom? I was a stranger in a foreign land." And the idea is Gersham, meaning wherever I was, I was there. I wasn't here. I wasn't present. I was out of my place. I was in a foreign land. And the question is, where's the Eretz Nochriah? Does he mean that in Midian he was a stranger because he's Egyptian? Does he mean that when he left Midian to go to Egypt, he felt like he was out of his place because his family is in Midian? In which case, calling his son Gershom when he was born was a bit of prophecy or planning for the future? Uh, Or does it mean something that uh, we would see in a very different light, which is for a Jew to be outside of Israel is to be in a foreign land, and that Moshe is a a foreigner? Uh, the simplest read, of course, is that when he was in Midian, he was out of his country of Egypt, and he called himself a Ger Be'eretz Nochriah. <coughs> Parenthetically, this line of Ger Ha'iti Be'eretz Nochriah evokes for us, of course, the promise of Brit Ben Amatarim, Yadot Tidaki Geri Yezarcha Be'eretz Tolahem, that the entire Brit Ben Amatarim, the covenant between the pieces made between Hashem and Avraham back in Breshit 15, Breshit Tetvav, starts with your seed will be strangers in a foreign land and they'll be oppressed, etc. And we understand that Brit having, having been fulfilled through the experience of Mitzrayim and the Exodus, uh, that Moshe seems to now personalize it and say that on an individual level he also experienced at least that part of it. What do we hear about the second name? V'shem Ha'echad Eliezer. And this again is a variation on the Levitic name. Because there is a name that appears numerous times in the in the family of Levi, and that is the name El Azar. Most famously, of course, is Moshe's nephew El Azar, who becomes at the end of Moshe's career the Kohen Gadol when Aharon dies, and not even Avihu are not alive. El Azar is the oldest son left. Uh, El Azar is the Kohen Gadol throughout Yoshua's career, 
and then there are numerous other Al-Azars, including the Al-Azar, who was put in charge of watching the Aron in Kiyat Yarim and Shmuel Aleph, Perak Vav. And uh, if you take a look in Divrei Amim Aleph through Perak Vav and take a look at the Levitic uh, genealogy, you could see uh, numerous Al-Azars. And here is again a twist. The name is Al-Azar, but I'm going to call him Eliezer. Why? Ki Elohei Avi Ezri. Eliezer, meaning the God of my father was my helper, or perhaps was at my right side, Bezri, and he saved me from Paro's sword. And midrashically, this is taken to refer to Paro putting out a death warrant on Moshe when he found out that Moshe had killed the Egyptian, and Moshe running away, and in the further midrashic development, Moshe actually being brought there and them trying to decapitate him and his neck turning to uh, to marble so he couldn't uh, cut it off. But the simplest read of this is that he was able to escape Paro and be saved from him. And if you notice that in both of the names of his sons, we have a microcosm of the experience of B'nai Israel. B'nai Israel were foreigners in a strange land, the first component of Brit Ben Amitarim, and B'nai Israel were saved from Paro's sword. Paro is trying to kill them uh, miraculously by God, and so therefore Gershom and Eliezer are beautiful names which, which essentially represent the two sides of the experience that B'nai Israel have gone through, uh, that they are now, they've now come out of, uh, being strangers and then being saved. Again, the added piece is that both Gershom and Eliezer are just slight variants, variations on well-known Levitic names, so it works very well also tribally. In any case, that's the exposition. Those four psukim are the matzag, the exposition, that sets us up, giving us the players. There's Moshe, of course, there's Yitro, there's Tziporah, there's Gershom, there's Eliezer. One final note about Gershom and Eliezer before we move on, because we won't hear about them ever again, is this uh, notion of the leader with two sons is a recurring motif throughout Tanakh. You have it with Moshe. You have it with Aharon. I'll explain that in a minute, even though he has four sons. You have that famously with um, Eli, Chofni and Pinchas. You have that with Shmuel. Um, you have it with numerous leaders uh, who had uh, two sons. And um, with really very few exceptions, uh, as great as the leader was, their sons either amounted to very little uh, or else actually went in a wayward path. The two examples, of course, in Sefer Shmuel, both Chofni and Pinchas, and, um, and uh, of, uh, of Yoel and, uh, and Shmuel's two sons, uh, Yoel and Abiyah, are that they actually went bad. They were very bad people. And, uh, and so they could not really take over for their father properly in either case. And uh, tragically, this is a reality that we're familiar with not only in Tanakh, but throughout Jewish history and human history, that great leaders often don't make great parents, and that uh, it's very hard to devote yourself almost single-mindedly to the welfare of the community and the success of the klal and still be a successful private person. We do know exceptions to this, and they are remarkable people, but it's very hard. And uh, indeed, Moshe was not able to pass the mantle of leadership on to his sons, and uh, we don't hear about them again um, until a brief mention in Divrei Amim. Um, I mentioned about Aharon, just as a footnote to that, is that Aharon had four sons, but if you notice, consistently through the development of the Kuhuna, it's not Aharon, Nadav, Avihu, and Lazari, Tamar. It's Aharon, Nadav, and Avihu. 
And when Nadav and Avihu tragically die on that Yom HaShmini, then Elazari Tamar step in and take over for them. So it's as if the model always is leader and two sons, leader and two sons. And in the case of Aaron, when the two sons die, the other two sons step in and take his place. Okay, we've done with the Matzag, with the presentation. And now let's take a look at the actual event of the visit of Yitro to Moshe. Vayavo, Yitro choten Moshe uvanav v'ishto el Moshe. Okay, so here we go. Choten Moshe uvanav, and now we have corrected, as, you, as it were, Shnevaneha, her sons, to uvanav, his sons. So it's now Moshe, he brings Moshe's sons, ve'ishto, and his wife, el Moshe. So he's returning them. He brings them to the desert where he is camping there, and he's camping there at Har Ha Elohim. One note about this phrase, Har Ha Elohim, literally the mountain of God. Uh, Har Sinai is called Har Ha Elohim the first time we encounter it. When Moshe is shepherding Yitro's flock at the very beginning of Perak Gimel of Shemot, he shepherds the flock beyond the Midbar, a Midbar actually being a grazing area. He comes to Har HaElohim, the mountain of God, Choreva, which we would translate as being, which is also known as Choreva, but also means it's a desolate spot, it's a withered spot, a spot that nothing grows, so he's gone beyond the proper grazing area. Why is it called Har HaElohim? So most commentaries understand that it's Har HaElohim because eventually it's the place where God will reveal himself and give us the, the law. And as a result of that, it's called Har HaElohim in anticipation of that. And as, uh, as some of the Rishonim point out, since the Torah is only written afterwards, at that point we retrospectively call it Har HaElohim. However, the Sforno has a different take. It says he came to Har HaElohim, Lith Sham. In other words, this is a place that Moshe used to come when he was shepherding the flock in order to meditate and to perhaps uh, communicate with God or have his spiritual odyssey uh, at this place. Uh, and so it already might have a title, Har Elohim. Indeed, it may have been known to people in the area as a holy place, as some sort of a shrine. In any case, that's where Yitro comes. And now let's hear the conversation. Vayomer El Moshe. Now, this is an interesting piece because Vayomer and Moshe, we would normally assume the two of them are face to face and Yitro meets him, but it's not the case as we'll see. Vayomer and Moshe says to Moshe, Ani Yitro Which is an odd thing to say when you meet, when you see somebody face to face. I am your, and again, we'll call it brother in law Yitro, coming to you. And your wife and her two sons with her. In other words, the way that Yitro introduces this family is, this is your wife and her two sons, which of course are your two sons, and this may explain why in the very first presentation in the Matzag, in, um, in Pasuk Bet, it's, um, uh, sorry, in Pasuk Gimel, it's, it refers to the sons as Shnei Vaneha, her sons. Because maybe that, because since that's the way Yitro is going to present them to Moshe, that's what he calls them. Why does he say that way? There is seemingly a not too subtle uh, critique of Moshe for sending them away and not for not being with his family. And he says, here's your wife and her two sons. She's had to raise them. She's had to take care of them while you've been gone. In any case, they are with them. However, again, it seems like this conversation has taken place face to face, in which case the language is very bizarre. 
And Pasuk Zion sets us straight. Vayitzei Moshe likrat chotano. Moshe comes out to greet his brother-in-law. Which means that Pasuk Vav should be read as a message. In other words, Yitro is an important man, has the wife, the two, his sister, her two kids, and he has a delegation. And the delegation, the messengers, come to Moshe and make an announcement. Yitro, your brother-in-law, is coming with your wife and her two kids. So now Moshe comes out to greet him. And you can imagine being a member of B'nai Israel and suddenly hearing the word going through the camp that Moshe's family is coming, and you had never heard of, or at least never met Moshe's family, maybe you didn't even know he had one, and that he's got sons, this is a momentous thing. And so you can imagine everybody seeing the scene. By Moshe Moshe comes out to greet him. He bows, meaning Moshe bows and embraces him and kisses him. And then Vaishalu Shalom. They greet each other and they ask about their welfare. And then they come into the tent. And this is a scene not unlike scenes that we saw in Breshit of people coming and greeting. Either people who hadn't seen each other or more often strangers. When the slave comes to get a wife for Yitzchak, he's greeted with all sorts of beautiful greetings and then brought into the tent. Brought into the tent, the idea is hospitality brought in in order to uh, have some repast. Um, and Yitro has been traveling, so he's brought into the tent. Now, Vaisaper Moshe Moshe tells, or recounts, more literally, to his brother-in-law, everything that God did to Paro and to Egypt, on behalf of or regarding Israel. Which, if you think about it, is a little strange, because what motivated Yitro to come? Yitro had heard everything that Hashem had done for Moshe and Israel Amo. Aha. So maybe he had not yet heard about all the things that Hashem had done to Paro, and perhaps not even about the plagues. Because there the emphasis seems to be on getting them out, and on behalf of Moshe, taking Moshe's people out. Here the emphasis seems to be on the plagues. Everything that Hashem had done to Paro and to Mitzrayim is a reference to the plagues. <clears throat> and then he adds, Et Adonai. All of the difficulties, all of the oppression that found them on the way. Remember, they are traveling, and nothing's uneasy. They had thirst, they had hunger, they had the sea to contend with, and they had Malalek to battle. All sorts of challenges they had along the way. That's Adonai, and God saved them. Now, this takes us back to the question we asked at the beginning. What motivated Yitro to come? So we're about to get an answer. But what is it Moshe has recounted in the, at this point? They greet each other, very nice, they come into the tent, and Moshe then tells his brother-in-law, everything Hashem did to Paron Mitzrayim, seems to be the Makot, possibly create Yamsuf, on behalf of Yisrael, and then all of the difficulties that found them on the way, and God saved them. Vayichad Yitro. Yitro was excited, was happy, from the word chedva. Although, uh, there's interesting Midrashim here about the fact that Yitro 
being not part of the nation, hears that another nation has suffered, maybe it's chidudim chidudim, like Rashi said, quoting the Midrash says, that he suddenly became goose-pimpled and kind of scared about it. But the simple read is that he was very happy, and we see it from the rest of the passage. He was very happy for all of the great things that Hashem did for Yisrael. Hashem hitzilomi al Mitzrayim. That he saved Yisrael from Mitzrayim. And so now, added to what Yitro knew from before that motivated him to come, is all this new this information about the plagues and about being saved from Mitzrayim. And what's his reaction? By Yomer Yitro, Baruch Adonai, Asher Yitzil Atchem, Miyad Mitzrayim, Umiyad Paro. And Yitro says, Blessed is Hashem, who has saved you from Mitzrayim and from Paro. And again, suddenly, the role of Paro and the defeat of Paro becomes central in his thanksgiving, which is not part of what motivated him to come. And he saved the nation from under the hand, meaning under the control of Mitzrayim. And if you think that, think about it, that goes back to the very first of the promises that Hashem gave at the beginning of Vayera, the famous four phrases of Geula, I will take you out from under their oppression, and I will save you from working for them. And so the very fact that Hashem saved them from un- being under the thumb of Mitzrayim, for that he was giving thanks for. <clears throat> and then he says, Now I know, that Hashem, your God, is greater than all the other gods. By the way, this is not pure monotheism. This is what we call monolatry, meaning he's saying there's a lot of gods, but Hashem is greater than all of them, specifically, of course, the gods of Egypt. Ki vadavar asher zadu alehem. And the notion here is the simple read of it, beautiful midrashim on this, but vadavar asher zadu alehem, the word zadu which really means to seethe or to boil, also means to concoct an evil plan. And that's why somebody who acts intentionally is called mezid. It's like cooking up a plan. And vadavash is meaning the things that the Egyptians planned and plotted against you, and Hashem still was able to get you past. So he's more powerful than all of their gods and all of the other gods. And this is what Yitro's new realization so we brought Yitro from recognizing that there is a God of Israel to say the God of Israel or Hashem Yod Kevavke is the supreme God over all of the gods has power over all the other gods. Yitro has not wiped other gods out of his consciousness, but then again, uh, question is who had at this point? Um, that's not entirely clear. And the passage ends with the following. When we're done, we'll take a look back at our opening question. Yitro then took. Um, then took Ola, which is a burnt offering, which literally means slaughtered meat, but what it means is offerings that are shared, that are eaten, for God. Vaikach means he didn't bring them with him. In words, he wasn't planning to bring some sort of an offering. He came with the family. And on the spot, he took, which evidently means he purchased from people who had animals, he purchased animals to be brought as korbanot, as thanksgiving offerings for saving whom? for saving his family, saving his brother-in-law, and therefore the husband of his sister and is the father of his nephews. <clears throat> and now Aharon and all of the elders come in to eat lechem. Now lechem, 
unlike in modern Hebrew, lechem in Tanakh means food. Pot is bread. Lechem, so to eat food, meaning the korbanot, the meat of the korbanot. Im chotem Moshe. So who's the star of this party? Not Moshe. The guest of honor here is Yitro. And to eat with Yitro, lifnei Elohim, in the presence of God. How is it in the presence of God? Where is God's presence? This phrase, lifnei Hashem, which appears numerous times in Tanakh, besides the context of a specific place like the Mikdash or the Mishkan, um, seems to be seems to mean here that since they were bringing the offering, then eating the offering is in the presence of God. Um, so they're eating this vachim. He's brought the olot. So what is it? Going back to our first question, that motivated Yitro to go. As you can see, the pasuk Yud Gimel starts a new story because this all happens on the day that Yitro arrives. The first four psukim are the exposition, and the next day psukim are the event that takes place when Yitro arrives, the conversation, culminating with the Thanksgiving offerings brought by Yitro. The next passage, which takes the last uh, 15 psukim of the parak, um, takes place the next day, and that's what we will uh, attend to in the next podcast. But to finish up, up in the shiur, um, what is it that motivated Yitro? What had him come so that he was pushed to come further instead of waiting until they got to Midian. But Vayishma, uh, and again, look back at the first Pasuk, we hear, that Hashem had taken Yisrael out of Yitzrayim. So he hears, first of all, that his brother-in-law is close. Second of all, that he cared out miraculously. And remember, the last thing he heard was his brother-in-law saying, I want to go to see how they're doing. And suddenly he hears about miracles and them coming out. But what he evidently had not heard about was about the plagues. So what is it that he had heard about? Well, if you remember, one of the things that Moshe tells him, which he didn't know about it beforehand, was, all the troubles that encountered them on the way, and Hashem had saved them. Which sounds like the war with Amalek. So it sounds as if what Yitro had heard about, at least from the simple shot reading, that what Yitro had heard about was about the very fact of the Exodus, about Yitzhak Mitzrayim itself. Not the details, not the plagues, not the troubles in the desert that Hashem had guided them through, but the very fact of the Exodus. Possibly, one could argue, uh, that he also heard about Kriyat Yamsuf, and the reason we would say that is something that's buried a little bit in the first Pasuk. And that is, the Moshe Uli Yisrael Amo reminds us of the phrase just before Shirat Hayam, the Bnei Yisrael's attachment with Hashem and with Moshe becomes solidified at that moment of Kriyat Yamsuf, and so therefore, at Kol Asher Asadlohim, the Moshe Uli Yisrael Amo may be alluding indeed to Kriyat Yamsuf, the great miracle that, according to the Shira itself, was something heard about throughout the area and everybody knew about and we had confirmation of that from Rachav 40 years later in Yehoshua Bet. We'll pause at this point. In the next podcast we're going to pick it up and start with Pasuk Yod Gimel and go to the end of this parak and see Yitro's advice to Moshe and uh, we'll have a little bit of a tour of parts of Sefer Dvarim. In the meantime we should have a wonderful day.